Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. We've been looking at the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians that we know as 1 Corinthians while he was stationed at the city of Ephesus on his third missionary journey. We're continuing on with the discussion in 1 Corinthians, looking today at chapters uh, 11 through 16. We're going to finish off chapter 11 and then uh, go through the remainder of these chapters. We talked about the first half of chapter 11 in looking at uh, public worship and the covering of uh, women's hair and the uncovering of of men's hair there. And now uh, looking at verses 17 through 34, the second half of this chapter, uh, looking at abuses of the Lord's Supper that are discussed by Paul in these verses. Some believers, it seems, were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, while others did not get to participate in the meal at all. Uh, Paul says that these abuses are going to lead to God's judgment in verses 27 and 29, and are the reason that some have become sick and have even fallen asleep, which is uh, metaphorical for death here, in verse 30. So it seems that there were uh, some in the Corinthian church who were using the Lord's Supper as an excuse to get together and have a party with others while there were uh, others, and these are perhaps representative of different uh, social statuses within the Corinthian church, others who may have been poorer, who were not getting to participate at all in the supper. Some were having an overabundance of wine, and others had nothing. Paul writes to refute this type of behavior in the Corinthian church, saying that the taking of the Lord's Supper should not be done lightly or whimsical. It's not a party. It's not some kind of a a crazy festival that they're participating in, but it should be done uh, with order and with examination in verse 28. Uh, It is to be done... Uh, with a sobriety. They should not be getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They should be contemplative, reflective uh, of their own lives, examining their hearts, uh, seeing what the Lord would reveal to them about uh, sinfulness that needs to be dealt with in their own hearts and in their own lives. And then having thought about these things uh, and thought about the way that Christ had provided for uh, uh, forgiveness of sins through his sacrificial death, that then they should take the Lord's Supper and remember what the Lord Jesus has done for them. So the taking of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, uh, remind the believer in Christ about what Jesus has done on their behalf. It should be done uh, in a very reflective way, thinking about how the shed blood of Jesus Christ forgives our sins. Now, as we move into chapters 12 through 14, 
we find that in this major section of 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to address abuses that relate to spiritual gifts. Paul begins by talking about the purpose of spiritual gifts in chapter 12. The purpose of a spiritual gift is for the unity and building up of the body of Christ. He says in verse 7, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The Spirit gives gifts of wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, tongues, interpretation of tongues. But in verse 11, all of these gifts are empowered by one in the same Spirit who sovereignly gives out gifts as he desires. So the purpose of spiritual gifts is not for the individual to whom the gift is given, but for collectively the body of Christ for its building up and for the glory of the Lord through the church. Paul then goes on to talk about the body of Christ in the second half of chapter 12, and that individual believers are members of that one body. There is a collective nature to the body of Christ so that we all need each other and cannot function properly without all our parts. Verse 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. At the moment of salvation, therefore, the Spirit of God immerses us into the universal, mystical body of Christ. The group of believers who have existed from the moment of Pentecost all the way through to the period in which we're living today. In the moment of faith, uh, individuals who are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God, includes them, baptizes them into this body of Christ, which is inclusive of all who have believed in Jesus throughout the history of the church. Paul says in verse 26, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. There is a unity among the body of Christ. Now in chapter 13, at the end of chapter 12, uh, Paul has exhorted his audience to earnestly desire the higher or greater gifts. And in chapter 13, he's going to speak of these more excellent gifts, particularly of, of love. Love must be the underlying characteristic behind all of our actions as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 13 and verses 1 through 3. Paul says there, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Without love, all the spiritual gifts are useless. They don't build up the body of Christ. Paul goes on to say that other gifts will come and go. Some gifts would abide with the church. Others, like prophecy and tongues and knowledge, would pass away in verse 8. 
This is most likely a reference to the temporary nature of some of the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, like tongues speaking or prophecy in the New Testament, healing, for example. Paul finishes this section in, in chapter 13, reminding his readers that faith, hope, and love remain. But the greatest of these is love. And as he moves into chapter 14, uh, the believers in Christ, therefore, are to pursue love even while seeking spiritual gifts, like prophecy. There's nothing wrong with that, he says in verse 1. They are to strive to excel in building up the church, in verse 12, rather than simply being eager for manifestations of the Spirit. And he, what he will really specifically address here in the Corinthian church is the uh, speaking in tongues uh, miracle. It seems they desired the miraculous, but not for the sake of others, but for their own benefit. They wanted to speak in tongues uh, because of the um, blessings that it brought to the individual and not necessarily for the sake of the building up of the body. So Paul will say in response to this in chapter 14, verses 13 through 25, he will talk about the superiority of the gift of prophecy over the gift of tongues, in that the one who speaks in a tongue does not necessarily know what they are saying, although it demonstrates the Spirit's work and role in their life. If their speech cannot be understood, the group of believers is not built up, whereas prophecy is given directly for the building up of the church. Prophecy is speaking to God's people, the words of God directly revealed to the prophet. In verses 26 through 40, Paul then talks about order within the church gathering. All things should be done for the building up of the church, verse 26. If no one is available then to interpret tongues, the tongue speaker should be silent in verse 28. Prophets were to prophesy one at a time. Women were to keep silent in the church in verse 34. He concludes his discussion of, of worship in the church in these chapters by saying, So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. The Corinthians were desiring to speak in tongues as sort of this evidence of perhaps a, a higher or greater spirituality. And we see this prevalent in our society today. There are some within uh, the church in America today who highly value tongues speaking above other spiritual gifts as evidence of sort of a, a higher spirituality. Uh, Paul says it's better to prophesy in this context than it is to speak in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. And based on what he has said in chapter 13, I think we should see both prophecy and speaking in tongues 
as gifts of the church that were foundational for a limited time within the apostolic period, but now have largely uh, passed away because what they were for was to verify the message of the gospel, which has been verified through the word of God, and to communicate revelation from God to human beings, which we have in its fullness in the word of God today. In chapter 15, Paul deals with the topic of resurrection. It is something of a proof for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Paul actually lists individuals and groups to whom Christ appeared in his resurrected glory in chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. The importance of the resurrection for salvation is discussed in verses 12 through 34. Paul will say that if Christ has not been raised from the dead then the preaching of the gospel is in vain and we are still in our sins. And those who have died with, in Christ are gone forever. Uh, there's no hope. We should be uh, above all other men the most to be pitied in this world. But this is not the hope we have. Rather, Christ has been raised from the dead as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in verse 20. He goes on to talk about how when Christ returns, those who belong to Christ will be raised from the dead and reign with Christ in his kingdom as well in verses 24 through 28. Paul talks about the resurrection body and the mystery of resurrection in verses 35 through 58. The resurrection body is an imperishable and spiritual body like Christ's in that we will also bear the image of the man of heaven, in verse 49. This transformation occurs at the last trumpet, when Christ will return from heaven, and will, we will be changed, verse 52. It will happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. I think this is a reference to the first part of Christ's return where he comes for his believers in the clouds and removes them from the coming day of wrath, the tribulation, uh, which will come on the earth after the rapture of the church. In chapter 16, Paul talks about practical matters to conclude the letter. He, in verses 1 through 4, speaks of the collection for the saints in Jerusalem to help support the church which was in need there. He gives his plans for travel in verses 5 through 11. He's planning to come to Corinth after visiting Macedonia when he leaves Ephesus. He's already sent Timothy and admonishes them to let no one despise Timothy, probably because of how young he was. Paul himself wanted to stay at Ephesus until after Pentecost because of both success in ministry and strong opposition to it. He gives final instructions about Apollos, about Stephanus, Fornatunus, and uh, Achaeus, who were possibly going to visit Corinth, and then he gives them greetings from the churches of Asia. Now, next time we will look again at Paul's time in Ephesus and talk about how that came to an end. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.